Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Michelle A. Berard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the June 12th show, Diane Sears. You got to enjoy an encore presentation of an interview I had with Diane Sears in 2017. You can connect with Diane on LinkedIn and her book, In Search of Fatherhood, Transcending Boundaries, International Conversations on Fatherhood, can be found on Amazon and at other book retailers. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the June 12th show, at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Geniuses Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and we should share it with the youth, but it's not just for the kids, guys. We adults sometimes need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Well, it is June, so we're still taking the month off for my birthday, but I have a wonderful interview for you. We will be having a replay of my 2017 interview with Dr. Maxine Bryant, diversity and criminal justice reform advocate. Enjoy. I am so pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Dr. Maxine Bryant. Nationally and internationally, she has um, just, she's just been described as a dynamic presenter. She has covered topics from customer service to race relations, diversity, and inclusion, all these various topics from the most basic to the much more challenging and delicate to discuss. Maxine Bryant has repeatedly captured the hearts and minds of many audiences. With over 30 years of experience as a professional trainer, she is well-versed in a variety of topics and has presented and or developed workshops, lectures, and keynote addresses for diverse audiences across America, in the Grill, Jamaica, the West Indies, Cairo, Egypt, and Ghana in Africa. Dr. Bryant holds a Bachelor of Science from Ball State University, a Master of Arts from Saginaw Valley State University, and a Doctor of Philosophy and Human Services degree from Walden University. All her degrees have a concentration in criminal justice and corrections. Now, in addition to all of that, as if that's not enough, She's got years of experience leading criminal justice agencies. She is the founder of Bryant Educational Seminars and Training, BEST, 
an independent training and project development consulting firm. And through BEST, BEST, she has aided in improving the quality of life in communities most affected by crime and violence by offering direct programming to residents and to people with criminal histories. Maxine Bryant also is an author and a poet. She's published two books, I Want My Groove Back, God's Way, and Truth Be Told. So guys, with all of that wonderful curriculum vita, <laughs> I want to welcome Dr. Maxine Bryant to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. So thank you, Maxine, for coming on the show. <laughs> wow, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle. That's awesome. Well, thank you. You know, we talked earlier in the week, and I'm going to just say again, I'm really excited to have you on the show because you and I have a lot of overlapping interests and experience in areas such as training and coaching and writing and poetry in particular. (laughs) Uh, You know, I have a soft spot for poetry and also issues related to the problems associated with incarceration and the way communities of color are impacted by the high incarceration rates in our communities. So that all of that is just fascinating stuff, and the intersection there is just wonderful for me to get into a discussion with you about that. But before we get to all of that, I like to start an interview with two questions. And the reason I like to start with these two questions is because I believe that they lead right into who you are and what you're doing, and why. So, here are the questions. Dr. Maxine Bryant, (laughs) who are you, and how did you become who you are today? Wow. Okay. Okay. Who am I? I think the first thing that's important for me in self-defining is that I am Christian. I am a Christian. I am a daughter of our Lord. And that's at my core. Um, I am a person who loves life and all that life has to offer, the good and the bad. I am a survivor. Uh, I've been through some really rough times, Michelle, as most of us. Uh, some of us get stuck in those rough times. Um, I have been able to, 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 to not only survive, but to thrive. So I think in a nutshell, that kind of describes who I am. I am a go-getter, a believer in, um, in what is yet to come. So I'm optimistic about life and what it has to offer. And I'm always looking for the good in life and in people. So. Um, that kind of describes who I am. And the second part of your question uh, was, what, how did I get here? How did I get to be here? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Wow. You know, I think our parents have a they, they play a big role in who we are or who we become. And not just because they shape us, but... Um, my mother prayed for me, even when 
the doctors told her that I would never talk uh, correctly because I had something wrong with my tongue. Or when the counselor told her not to waste her money sending me to college because I was not college material. When those negative messages came at my mother, and even when I, you know, as an, uh, a young I began making really bad decisions. My mother never gave up, and she always took me to the Lord in prayer. So she was a prayer, and she's gone to be with the Lord now. But if she were alive now, she would be like simply amazed. She'd be like, oh, Lord, you heard my prayer. And so um, I got here where I am on um, the prayers of my mother, you know, really. Wow. Uh, something I've done on my own in terms of, uh, you know, finishing school and making sure that that was uh, something that I, I accomplished. Um, but uh, at the core, some of the stuff that has happened to me are, I believe, blessings from God that are the result, the direct result of a mother's prayer. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that is... You know, I think that's really interesting because there is some, I've heard people talk about that before. In fact, um, my ex-husband told me that his mom prayed him back to life. And the wow. power of a mother's prayer, that, that, that emphasis on the power of a mother's prayer is just fascinating to me. Yes, yes. And it, it is, I, I am living proof of that, Michelle. I really believe that. So is that what kind of informs your faith and your optimism? Hmm. Now that's a good question. Does that mean, well, I think to some degree, but I think at some point I had to, you know, my mother's prayer certainly laid a, a great foundation, but at some point I have to take responsibility for making decisions, for doing what was right for me, uh, for maintaining a level of optimism in the face of fear, degradation, uh, failure even. So um, I think some of that may be innate, the way we're kind of cut, the way we are designed, and then some of it is just a choice. Mm-hmm. So I think it may be a combination of all of that. You know, I'm not any different from many people that you've had on yourself who have faced adversity but refuse to let adversity get the best of me. Right, 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 right. So you mentioned that you're a survivor. Yes. And that just begs the question, of what kinds of things have you survived? Wow. So let me start as a child. I can remember being like four, three or four years old because I was um, young enough to stand on my mother's couch and not get a beat. Right. So uh, <laughs> I remember standing on my mother's couch and there was a man, a deacon at our church, nevertheless, 
school would come over to visit my parents, and um, they trusted this man. So they may be in another room, and he was watching TV, uh, and they wouldn't be gone long. It's not like they were, like, gone for an hour or so, but they mm-hmm. were doing things. They were, you know, mother may have been, my mom may have been cooking, and maybe dad was doing something else, right? But while they were out of the room, he was, he was physically molested with his fingers. You know, because my mother always made me wear dresses. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, that's right, there's something wrong about that. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until obviously years later that I realized I was being molested. Right? Wow. And so that changes um, everything about a little girl. It takes away the innocence. Um, but I survived that. I did not let that childhood molestation hold me bonded. So then fast forward, but I, because I think it, it set in motion a number of things. So fast forward uh, to college years, and mm-hmm. um, I, I was late while I was in college. Oh, wow. um, but, you know, and certainly I do not take responsibility for all of that, but uh, for that to be but making wrong choices about being in, in places, right, and um, contributed, no doubt, to some of the things that may have happened. Then I began looking for love in all the wrong places, and I got married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. So I'm a survivor of um, those kinds of bad choices, having been married three times and divorced three times. And my second husband was physically and emotionally abusive. I survived that. Um, I survived bankruptcy in my life. Being on public assistance and the ridicule that I received from my case manager, uh, my case worker, rather, who, you know, got joy, I believe, out of putting me down and making me feel bad. Um, I survived having a home doing the foreclosure because there was a time, even though I had managed my money well, was living well off of my business, and 2009 to 2010, if you will remember the economy, mm-hmm. out of you know, And I, I often say I couldn't even pay people to hire me. <laughs> mm-hmm. The development that my business did. And that was after a good run, you know, about a left-year run of making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of being, you know, uh, asked to travel across the country and across the world, delivering speeches and writing books and all of that. And then I found myself out of the system because I had I lived off of my savings for about a year. And then after mm-hmm. that, I just had no more money, right? The final thing I think that I can say I have survived is the death of my daughter. Well, that was wow. the one that knocked me off my feet. My daughter was 31, had become addicted to a drug called Stern, and that um, PCP laced in either a cigarette or a marijuana joint. Oh, wow. Um, she blacked out when she was here. Uh, she lived in Vegas. She would black out. When I realized she was um, addicted, I tried to get her help, tried to, you know, intervene to the best of my ability. I lived in Indianapolis at the time, and as I said, she was in Vegas. Um, 
we talked on the day after Thanksgiving in 2011 and had a wonderful conversation. I was, uh, had just finished the classwork, working on my PhD, getting ready to go into the dissertation phase. And she was telling me how proud she was of me. And I was telling her how proud I was of her. And we exchanged mutual, you know, hey, I love you, mom. I love you, baby girl, you know, all of that. And that was my last conversation with her. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> I received a call on Friday night after Thanksgiving. In 2011, and Saturday afternoon, I received a call that she had drowned, and she had been given by, um, on turn by the backyard pool to the house where she lived in, and had dropped out and fell into the pool and drowned. And, oh, wow. um, I survived. I survived. I am surviving. I'm not going to say I have survived, because that's continual. Uh, if you notice, we're now in November. Uh, the day she died was November 26th. So every year this time, I, at this time of the year, I am reminded of the significant loss. But yes, mm. I am surviving. So when I tell you that I have survived a lot, I think now you are a believer. <laughs> Oh, yes. I can see that. Definitely. Definitely. Wow. Well, as a mother, I'm going to start out by offering my condolences because I know that is a a pain that never truly goes away. I can't even imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right, Michelle. It never goes away. It is, I miss my daughter daily. And so it's that dull pain that is always And that's really what it is, isn't it? It's learning to live with and through the various pains that we experience in life. It is. And not letting them pull you down to a place where you're stuck. Because, you know, my story is not all of that um, dissimilar from other stories. They may not have gone through as much as I've gone through but, you know, I know people who've been through marriages and divorces. I know other women, many women, who've been molested as children. Um, I know people, women, who've lost their children, uh, whose children died before they, they did, which is just, you know, like totally whacked anyway. Um, but they got stuck. I know people who've gone through those types of things, and they get stuck in, in, a, in a place of, of the pressure, in a place of uh, maybe anxiety, uh, a place of not being able to move forward, uh, just, you know, just stuck. And I, I couldn't get stuck, Michelle. I, I could not. Um, I, I, something in me would not let me stay in those places. I made visits. You know, there were times, certainly, I visited depression. There were times, certainly, I visited uh, negative thinking and all of that, but I knew I couldn't live there. I could not make my habitation in those places. So let me ask you then, what, I've been married and divorced twice, so I have visited those places a couple of times myself. Um, okay. <laughs> but for me, every time I was able to just focus on my kids, that was what I did. 
I focus on my kids. And I think that's what kept me going. They needed me more than I needed to kind of sit and, and, and wallow in that place, right? Okay. What was it? What was it for you? What was it that kept you moving forward and helped to pull you out of that? That's a good question. It's, um, certainly, I can say from marriage number one, or maybe from, from marriage, for all three of the marriages, my children served uh, as and that kind of anchor for me, so so it, it kept me grounded and kept me looking in the future. Um, for the other things that I have gone through, um, I would say definitely my faith and knowing that my right now is not my always. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely my mantra. You know, I'm in the valley now. I'm going through now. Times are rough now. Money is tight now. Uh, my heart is broken now. All of those things I'm in physical pain now. But my now is never my always. And so as I continue to move forward, my right now becomes my past. And I continue to move forward into my future. So I like that. is what helps me. My right now is not my, my always. Okay, I'm going to just steal that quote from you. I'll attribute you, but um, I'm going to steal that from you just so you know. I'm I'm a big proponent of stealing what's good and what works, right? (laughs) But I will give you credit, just so you know. I give credit where credit is due, but I'm going to say that over and over again. Yes, please. Okay, okay. Um, 
minimum comes down to my last twenty dollars. And this time, most of my parents had been deceased to have these siblings to call on me money or whatever. Um, I had been uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. I had borrowed from him to the extent that I felt comfortable borrowing. And I had no money in the bank, had $20, period. $20 to my name. And um, I had a, a, a someone that called me and wanted me to do a training, a workshop. And I needed to get a tool, a prop wrapper. That particular training, I went to like Hobby Lobby or something like that, Michael's, I think it was. And um, I bought the item. And they, I don't think they had the item that I wanted. Dollars, the twenty dollars had fallen in the store. I cried. I remember melt, having a meltdown in my kitchen, and I'm like, God, you know, I needed the money in this training. I just fucked. Um, I don't have twenty dollars anymore. I mean, I felt like, you know, like someone had just taken a dagger and just really. Uh, uh, just shot at me, just stabbed me. And um, I remember being there to get up off my, my knees and go upstairs and use my phone to call the store. The store was getting ready to close. And I called the store, and the guy said, yeah, 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 like somebody's going to turn in $20. I'll take your name and number, but, you know, you might as well kind of forget that. Mm. Well, about an hour later, they called me, and someone had turned in the $20 bill. Wow. And then I said, okay, God, you've got me. You have got me. And less than two months later, I received information that there was a community in Indianapolis that had um, money, that had money, um, to spend, and they needed to hire a person to engage in offender reentry work. And mm-hmm. um, I interviewed for it, and this was like maybe in October. They needed to spend $40,000 between October and December. So they were going to give that $40,000 to the person who they hired to do this work. Still, I got that money. I got the contract. <laughs> And it was up, up, up and going. I was like, okay, God, I hear you. I hear you. That you is know, it. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was, that was when I knew that, okay, I got to stop it. And any time, any time after that, that I got um, depressed in a, in a dark place, I would remember. Well, you know, that's what we call evidence, right? That's your evidence. Uh, So let me ask you then, how would you describe faith? What do you, how would you define faith? And how does it act in your life actively? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I once heard a pastor describe faith coming out of, um, I want to say it's Hebrews. Uh, faith is the substance of things before the evidence of things not seen. Um, and he said, faith is acting like a thing is so, even when it is not so. 
so that it can become so, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of catchy, that was kind of cute, but I needed for it to be practical for me. And mm-hmm. so what I began to do is internalize and say, faith is me believing that God's able to do the miraculous without my help. It's me believing <laughs> that the very thing that I think is impossible is going to happen. So can I tell you another story? This is more Yes. Yes. So everyone should know the college professors make no money. We don't make any money. Mm-hmm. We, we get mm-hmm. the title. We get the summers off. We get spring break, Christmas break, Thanksgiving break, all of that. <laughs> we don't make no money. So um, when I came to Savannah and I realized I took like a $35,000 cut in pay when I moved here and started mm-hmm. teaching. We're like, oh, Lord, Jesus, do this. Whoa. So um, I prayed, and I'm like, God, I need to make a little bit more money. So he blessed me with a contract for about a year and a half uh, when my salary, like, tripled. And I thought, okay, this is cool, but it was really a difficult contract for me to do, and I decided to bow out of it. It was difficult for a number of reasons outside of myself. But um, that ended in June of this year, June of 2017. And by now, I've been in the university system long enough to have gotten some merit raises. Um, and I decided, okay, God, I'm going to make do with what you give me. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm going to manage what you have given me. Uh, we're good. We're good. I'm going along my own merry way. Uh, wanting, you know, would love to make more money, but not I'm good. I'm good. Michelle, when I tell you a blessing like fell out of the sky, I see the phone calls, and I'm a lecturer at the university, so I'm not on tenure track. So that means I'm not mm-hmm. uh, getting ready to get tenure. I'm a junior faculty. I've only been there for four years. So junior faculty. Mm-hmm. I get a call from the provost the interim provost, because our university is being consolidated. And he said, you know, Maxine, we've been looking around. We need to fill position in the interim uh, director of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we want you to do that. And I go, oh, wow. So <laughs> I meet with, <laughs> I'm like, okay, God, what you doing? So I meet with the president of the, the current university and the incoming president that will begin in January. And based on what they're telling me, it's even better than that. Beginning in January, the position transitions to associate provost of diversity and faculty development. So wow. I'm like, like real, real deep in, in higher ed and academia. That's, that's astounding. I'm junior faculty. I'm new junior faculty. I'm not on tenure track. So <laughs> I skip all of the layers that you're supposed to follow for advancement in higher ed. I see mm-hmm. assistant professor, associate professor, chair, director, dean. I skipped all of those layers. And I am not the associate provost, right? I'm like, wow. Wow. So I got, you know, just 
like I have testimonies of overcoming and surviving, I have testimonies of thriving in the hands right. of God. Right. Right, right, right. So that's that's key, isn't it? To remembering that you don't just have stories of woe. You also have right. your stories of triumph to fall back on. Absolutely. 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 Yes. So now I want to ask, what exactly does this position entail? So it's, it's associate provost, you're going to be doing what? The, is it diversity okay. type work on the campus or? Exactly. So that role entails opportunity, training, and development for faculty and staff around diversity and inclusion issues. And as you notice in my bio, I have that kind of experience behind me in the Mm -hmm. private sector. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It also entails working with admissions to ensure that we're recruiting diverse populations or people from underserved populations into the university. And then going beyond that and retaining those students who come from uh, those marginalized populations and with faculty, making sure that we recruit and retain faculty, that we are engaging in uh, searches for faculty that reaches a larger demographic and that we're being strategic about going after faculty who are, who come from underrepresented Populations. Now, once we get people on the campus, because the campus is a PWI, it's a predominantly white institution. Okay. Um, people from diverse uh, populations get there, then it is my job to make sure programs and things are in place to keep people there. For example, we have um, a program for men, um, the um, for the young the young men on campus, and my mind just went blank in terms of what that's called. One of them is called MOVE. The other is um, for our young men. We have that program that provides mentorship and social um, outlets and support for our young black men on campus. We also have a Hispanic group for the Hispanic girls called HALA. We also have for African-American girls, um, a program that's called Student African American Sisterhood that uh, is part of a national organization that actually my, my stepdaughter, Kalila Shabazz, started that. She's the founder of that. So we have that on, on our campus to support African American females in being successful. And all of those programs have increased our graduation rates among black and brown students. Tremendously. Now we're looking at an 80 percentile rate of graduation as a direct result of participation in those kinds of programs. So I want to make sure that we maintain those programs. I want to make sure that um, the faculty leaves a mess. Um, And and it became really, really clear about a month ago that we need to address the what faculty don't know or this level of discomfort. We had a situation on our campus where someone had written some uh, derogatory um, comments about black people, and, and it said they wrote it in a, in a men's restroom. I think it was a ladies' restroom, 
in a science building, and it said, today is the day all niggas will say, he's coming, bang, bang. Mm. With the climate of our country right now, I was not in this position at that time, but shortly thereafter, like within two weeks, is when they asked me to step up and, and field the sport. But as I talked to various professors around the campus, particularly our white professors, I was hearing people say that they wanted to be able to support students. They didn't know how, didn't know how to have a conversation in the classroom, and so they didn't, because a lot of white people don't feel comfortable talking about race. Right. Well, part of my job is to help them learn how to do that and develop a level of uh, comfortability with having those kinds of conversations. Gotcha, gotcha. That's actually so desperately needed right now. Um, I remember walking on, I attended Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, in the Atlanta metro area, and I remember walking onto campus. I transferred in in the middle of a bit of a, a racial ruckus when I transferred into campus, and I had no idea what was going on when I transferred in. And the tension on the campus was palpable, wow. and the inability to communicate was evident. And fortunately, they put a lot of resources, a lot of, you know, it's a very small school, and so they were able to put a lot of resources to getting everybody talking. But it was only through a concerted effort, a really focused effort, that we saw any, what I would call anything close to healing during the time that I was there. But the evidence of the success that they had to me was when I went back for my 25th, yes, 25th year reunion. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't believe I said that out loud. I went for my 25th year reunion. I'm still like, wait, I I, I feel like I'm still there. What? Um, but I went, and there were so many... Oh, yeah. You see, uh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to say that out loud. I just know that. <laughs> when the time comes, I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to say that. But I was so I was so overjoyed to see how many more students of color there were on campus. I mean, it was like, wait, this is crazy. Like, y'all look like y'all almost the majority now, and I'm freaking out. <laughs> You know, but they made a commitment. They really made a, a commitment to uh, recruitment. And if you look at, they actually broadcast the graduation uh, over the Internet because Oprah was there this oh. year. Yes. And so I was like, yes, I got to see Oprah. I can't be there, but I'm going to see Oprah. <laughs> but <laughs> I kid you not. It was amazing. And the class was so diverse. The, the class, it was amazing to see all these different women just going out into the world, you know, to make things better for everybody. And it just was heartwarming. So I know that by putting that kind of effort forward, campuses really can make a difference. 
they can make a huge difference yeah. in, in their community locally, but also the wider community. It has to be intentional. It has to be deliberate. Mm-hmm. Right? It has to be strategic. And yeah. so even for our university, I have a vision of us being a resource center, a diversity hub, um, a clearinghouse of information, if you will, so that when the community, when people in the community want information, they want speakers, they they want resources around diversity and inclusion, we can be that place. So that's my long-term vision. That's beautiful. Well, and that leads right into, you know, my other questions for you about working with the community at, at large. Because so when I moved to Atlanta some years ago, I seriously considered going to Savannah because I'm from New Orleans. And Savannah oh. reminds me of New Orleans, except it's much cleaner. It's much cleaner. <laughs> You don't have that early morning smell of urine as you walk down the street. It's just a little bit different. So, (laughs) but I love Savannah. Absolutely beautiful, amazing town. I love it. I love it. I love it. We were there every other weekend for months as I was trying to make this decision. And ultimately, I decided to stay in Atlanta because of what I perceived as not very good public schools and and well and that gets to the other issue that that you and one of the issues that you and I have an overlapping interest in and that is the incarceration rates and the way Mm -hmm. incarceration affects our communities and obviously there's that school to prison pipeline that we wonder you know that we all talk about and and so forth so how can how do you think that the university can serve as a bridge or do you think that the university can serve as a bridge to help raise the community up the larger community of savannah because there's some parts that are beautiful and that are wealthy and there was a lot of gentrification going on when i was looking around there some years before um but there are a lot of areas that are really tricky right so how can the university act, or and in, in what you're trying to do, how can that act in the community at large? Okay. So I'm going to answer that question by starting off with uh, kind of pigtails on what you said earlier about the the, um, the poor school, basically. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the fact that Georgia has among the, the uh, lowest graduation Rate in the country, and we mm-hmm. have among highest incarceration rates in the country. Mm-hmm. Then you begin to see that there's a definite connection between education and incarceration. So when our education is low, our incarceration rates are going to be high. So there's a definite link there. Um, and I want, let me say one other thing before I go into actually answering your question. We often look, you talked about the school to prison uh, pipeline. When we look at the majority of the uh, schools in urban communities and black communities, they are in neighborhoods that suffer economically. Well, schools rely on property taxes for funding. 
So if mm-hmm. you have a majority black school in an urban neighborhood in a, a where the property value is low, then they don't receive the same amount of dollars per capita as your school in a suburban white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people don't realize that, but when we yeah. wonder why there's such a strong connection between that school to prison pipeline, a lot of a lot of it begins with the poor quality of education that we receive in our community schools anyway. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to put that out there. Um, right, right. And universities then have a vested interest in changing that around because if we can graduate more people from elementary school and from high school, then we then create a pool that can attend our colleges, right? So there's, right. you know, there, there can be a selfish interest on the part of the university. So to answer your question, I have already begun doing some of that at Armstrong, and I think this position allows me to, to do it even on a greater scale, and I think other universities have seen the value in connecting with their communities also. Um, one of the things I have at the uh, Armstrong University every year um, is, and I think, yeah, I'll be doing it for my fourth year next year. It's called When is the Debt Paid Conference? And it is mm-hmm. for people with criminal history. They give you money to have it on campus. It is free for people who are uh, being released from prison. Uh, and I bring in a nationally known speaker every year who's been there and done that. I've never been incarcerated. And at that, I can say I haven't done. I don't have Okay. <laughs> but I do have the passion for working with that group of people. And um, to have people come onto the campus and be exposed to what we have to offer opens a door, perhaps, for uh, Armstrong to be a college of choice for people to consider. So that's one way. The other thing is that it forms a bridge between the uh, campus community and the Savannah community, because a long time, for a long time, there's a lot of tension uh, between the two uh, entities, uh, the school campus as well as Savannah. Uh, and so I think the work that I've done in the community around offender reentry and connecting that to Armstrong helps to bridge that bridge. Uh, yeah, so to speak. Now, in this role, what I want to do is to, and I'm going to use the word grow up, but it's not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mm-hmm. want to develop, maybe that's a better thing, I want to develop um, people on campus who can be champions for diversity. That's what I'm calling them. I also want to develop both um, and a physical resource. I want the Savannah community to view us as a source of information, a source of uh, talent that can help address the both issues. But by the same token, the university uh, has an opportunity to value the richness of culture that exists right here and realize that culture as we stabilize our uh, our being, our entity, as we continue to uh, emerge.
has the propensity to make his life even wider, if you will. Uh, but to, to take advantage of the richness from the Savannah community. And so now we have a mutually beneficial relationship going on, if you can. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. But I do think that universities need to realize they're not in a vacuum and they cannot exist without the people in that community, the surrounding community, supporting them. And then, so it becomes reciprocal. The university contributes to the community, uh, both in tangible ways as well as in um, non-tangible, you know, resource information. And that the community has an opportunity now to partner um, and feed into by way of people, students, all of that, um, to the, the university. So that that those are some of the ways in which I believe universities can um, help to eradicate or at least reduce the whole prison prison uh the prison pipeline and sow uh, some positiveness into the communities that they um, that they serve that they that they are a part of. And for me, a big part of that is going to address offender reentry. Well, and actually, that's something I'm curious about in terms of programs that you've run, because I've recently heard about a program that I think started in San Quentin, uh, where they are teaching uh, incarcerated folks how to code, you know, do computer programming. And their claim to fame at this stage, as I recall, was a zero recidivism rate. Because people are coming out and getting well-paying jobs, they're supposed to be expanding that program to right up the street from, well, I'm saying up the street. Right here in, in Chino, there's a, a women's prison, I understand, and they're supposed to be expanding that program there. And so I'm wondering what kinds of programs, if any, are going on in the state of Georgia, because um, Georgia does love incarcerating people, but does Georgia have any real programs in the prisons that you know of to help people to get better paying jobs when they come out or even just, you know, what kind of reentry programs do they have and what do those entail? So Georgia has a lot of reentry programs. Now, there is one, and I'm not sure that it's off. I'm, I'm thinking it's offered um, by one of the universities. We don't offer it at the university we're at, uh, but it's called Inside Out, where you um, – the university provides classes to inmates uh, inside of a prison, and um, those same inmates have an opportunity to come to the campus, if I'm not mistaken. I think that um, there are some pilot programs along those lines. Um, I would love to see our university and more universities get involved in those specific types of programs for um, people who are incarcerated. Now, in terms of the entry programs, there are a lot of um, both state and private reentry programs to help people once they get out. Um, I've been trying to replicate a program that actually started in Ohio called Citizen Circle. I call my neighborhood networks, and I replicated it in Indiana, but not here. But it's like going into the prison. Uh, with the person, begin meeting with the person six months prior to getting out, 
and then working with them while they're in to develop a plan at the same time training individuals who are outside who live in the community who volunteer to form a type of sports group. Many people mm-hmm. who come out of prison only have their peers to hang out with, the same folks that they were hanging out with before mm-hmm. they were in. Well, if we surround them with a new network, since the name Neighborhood Network, if we surround right. them with a new network of, of connection, then we can begin to shift their paradigm and point them in different directions with support that they need to be successful. So that's like something that I've been wanting to get started forever and just have not been able to get it off the ground here in Savannah yet. Um, but that's just some of that inside eye out is a program that's designed specifically for universities and prisons to connect. Okay. Okay, that's awesome. Well, I know that we had a couple of callers on the line. I think um, they may have had to drop off. I know there are some folks listening online. If anybody has any questions, we can go ahead and um, open up the lines. I think we have area code 617. Okay, I think they got disconnected. Well, I would like to come in. Uh, Ladies, I want to commend you uh, on this episode of Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Dr. Maxine Bryant, you two have been dropping gems, and I've taken a a lot away from this, so much so that um, I believe I have a lot of people that would benefit from what you two have said today. Uh, Michelle spoke of the, uh, you know, recidivism rate going down because of um, the coding, and I appreciate that input. And all of the diversity speak that you ladies are bringing forward is exactly what the landscape of our global nation, our global um you know, landscape needs right now. So I want to commend you, and I just wanted to make that statement because um, it's very important and very profound. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you you so much for that. And actually, I wanted to um, ask you, because we're coming up at the top of the hour, and I try to be very mindful of people's time, so I don't like to go over too much. But I did want to ask, because I know this is a little bit left field, of what we were talking about, but do you have anything of your writing or poetry that you'd like to share with us before we uh, wrap up the session? You know what I do, particularly for women who find themselves like in the middle, sometimes find ourselves in the middle of loneliness or in the middle of a bad relationship or in the middle of just crying because we're just tired of being tired, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in my book, The Truth Be Told, I have a poem called I Have It Tells, an autobiography. So I'd just like to read a snippet from that. It won't, I won't read the whole thing. Okay? Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you. Tony will never breathe again. Terry is waiting to tell. I am leaving. So you see, I concluded years ago that breathing without a man is better than holding my breath waiting for one. Mm. <laughs> I have it there. Oh. I too held my breath for a long time. Too long, in fact. I looked. I waited. I searched for my African dream to save me from life's ugly demons. I prayed. I tried. Stood waiting on the wings of love's direction. 
he lives. I stopped breathing, anxiously awaiting his appearance. I entered into disappointing relationships after disappointing relationships. Sometimes my African dream disappointed me. Often I disappointed myself. That's what she said. That's it. That's awesome. That no, that is awesome. You know that waiting to that waiting to excel can kill you. <laughs> you don't want to hold your breath too long because that can definitely. It can kill you. So, what inspired you to write that particular poem? I was mm. like holding my breath for Mr. Wright to come along, and then the Mr. who I thought was right come along, and I'm good. I'm breathing again. I'm good. And then I find out, oh, wait a minute, baby. Uh-uh. No, you are not it. And I, I, I realized I need to stop doing that. That was self-destructive. Right? Holding my breath, waiting for Mr. Wright. And so um, there's a part in the poem where I say that somewhere in my place I found myself. And I looked at the woman in the mirror, and I realized that I was strong and beautiful and smart and lovable and talented, and that I could be free of the waiting. And I yeah. kept putting those words to a point, and that's how the poem came about. And so it ends up on a good note. It's like, okay, I've learned the importance of breathing for myself without this assistance I have to say. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. So... We are at the top of the hour, so I just want to um, ask you, what do you have going on that you want our listeners to know about? Let's see. Every other Monday, I have the Dr. Maxine Bryant show. So Yay! Yeah, they can tune in at the uh, same address that, that uh, you're on, that lovely block is the bomb. So I'm on the same platform. And the next uh, Dr. Max and Bryant show is going to be November the 27th. I'm on two Mondays out of the month, every other Monday, November the 27th at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time um, on the Tribe Family Channel. So I'm uh, excited to be a partner with you and others who Beverly Black has left with the platform beautiful to speak to. Awesome, awesome. And so everybody, make sure that you follow Maxine Bryant. You can find Dr. Maxine on Facebook, right? Um, right. What's your Facebook handle? What's your Facebook handle? Maxine Bryant. I think it's real simple. Okay, Maxine Bryant. Yeah, on Twitter is Maxine B. Tweets. <laughs> Maxine B. Tweets on Twitter. So make sure you guys follow her. And... Dr. Maxine, remind everybody where they can find your books. Awesome, yes. Um, the website is uh, mygroovedback.com. Mygroovedback.com, all one word. And on that website, you can buy both the books, one or either one. I want my views back that way. And the book of poetry is called The Truth Be Told. So, uh, go to the awesome. Awesome. And I think that you are 
debuting Incarcerated Lives Matter. Is that correct? Incarcerated Lives Matter, too? Yes, 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 Incarcerated Lives Matter, too. And I will be hosting that. And I believe the very first segment of that is going to take place on Saturday, uh, November the 25th. Saturday, November the 25th. And I have to look to see uh, what time that that is on. Perhaps our producer can help me out there. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I am looking. I'm looking. Um, 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Pacific. Okay. Thank you. So I was looking to 5 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, incarcerated lives matter. Please. Awesome. Uh, sign on. Yeah. And that's November 25th. Right. So, very good. Very good. Very good. Well, Maxine, thank you so much for joining me here on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Broad. It has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebroad.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. We will be back in July with new shows, so make sure you tune in to the show on July 10th when my guest will be the Reverend Dr. Nicole B. Simpson, finance and securities expert and best-selling author of 9-11-01, A Long Road Toward Recovery. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.